Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm producer Jason Dawes, and here with me is our host, Dr. Russ McCullough, my fellow graduate assistant, Jacob Michael, and our undergraduate assistant, Jacob Caudill. Okay, so we want to talk about God, faith, and the national debt. <laughs> Probably have tried to work that. Well, we just came off of a fun thing last night. We had a debate, and we had three teens uh, we had our com a communications professor here at Ottawa University, Dr. Ryan Lewis, and he had a, a student with him on his team. I had a student of mine that's an economics major with me. And then we had the Jacob and Jason duo where we were trying to persuade people what the problem is with the national debt. And I had deficit and the graduate assistants had spending and the others had taxes. Of course, they're all interrelated to some degree. But nonetheless, uh, we had about 100 students, um, which was fun. Uh, most of them there on the incentive of extra, uh, extra credit offerings, uh, I will very willfully admit. But we had a good time, and uh, young Jacob here manhandled the concessions with ease. So that was awesome. We didn't run out of popcorn. Yes, we didn't run out of popcorn this time, so that was a big plus. And uh, I think people came away with a, a better understanding, certainly at – the college student level of a what a deficit is and a debt and why they might be some potential problems. So I thought it'd be fun today to uh, share this with our listeners, uh, especially since uh, Jacob and Jason did some research for their presentations. So um, Jacob, do you want to take a stab here at some of the things you came up with? Or? Well, uh, Jason wants to start out. She gave the first speech. And I thought she okay, we could go in that order. Yeah. So <laughs> You, you go for it. Uh, so I started out by talking about um, government waste. So there's a lot of programs that the government puts money towards that uh, you kind of kind of question why why is the government paying for that? Yeah, you had some toilets and coffee. <laughs> and yeah, I mean there's there's some funny examples. There's other interesting ones like they own seventy seven thousand empty or underutilized buildings, and it's like one point seven billion a year for maintenance on them. Yeah, and they're not thinking about the opportunity cost of oh, we could rent that out because yeah. it's on anybody's radar, right? And that's one of the other things is um, when I when I moved on to public procurement, how they contract out goods and services they really do lack innovation in a lot mm -hmm. of things because they're so strict on what they'll allow to happen. And so it takes a long time. It's expensive. And, and guess what their normal response is when, when something isn't working right or something doesn't go their way, what do they need? More money. More money. You got it, right? And so the incentive system without the – you know, profit and loss mechanism that we have in place as incentive in the private sector, then there's just no incentive. It's always, oh, we got a lot of work to do. We need to hire another employee. Well, how about if you just worked more efficiently or harder or put in the extra time? Uh, well, why would I want to do that? Good question. Maybe we should change incentives around here. So, 
Yeah, and one of my favorite uh, talking about incentives, one of my favorite that I went over was pork barrel spending because they they use it a lot. They'll add little pet projects into bills, and often it's an incentive for people to vote for the bill. And uh, one of the examples I used was they spent like $3.8 million to save part of the Tigers' old baseball stadium. Just just Mm -hmm. for one senator, one senator and his memories, you know, we're going to spend that much money in in a government bill. (laughs) Right, right. Well, it's kind of funny that we mentioned the the timing of today. So when I went to go teach my macroeconomics class, um, I ran into the hall, David Owen, and he had a visitor with him. So David Owen is a graduate of Ottawa University, and he started the Owen Leadership Institute here, for which we're grateful and um, he says, well, this is Dave Lind- Lindstrom, and he is running for U.S. Senate to fill the Pat Roberts seat. So just after the heels of what we were talking about last night, and by the way, I'm going into macro to talk about fiscal policy and budgets and balanced budgets and stuff. And uh, so uh, I said, well, if you guys got time, uh, I'm teaching over in Ward Science 101. Why don't you come over? It'd be awesome to introduce politician and former, well, uh, David, uh, Dave Owen had, was a former Lieutenant Governor of Kansas. And then he's uh, trying to help out this Dave Lindstrom. So uh, young Jacob, to put you on the spot here, what, uh, do you remember what Dave thought was kind of an interesting thing for his uh, platform in terms of Congress's pay and deficits and debt? Well, for every, we say every Trillion, billion, billion, every billion yep. that a congressman spends, then a hundred dollars would be taken out of their paycheck. Yeah. So he said he would propose legislation like that, so that for every billion dollars over, it would cost the politician. Was it a thousand or a hundred? A hundred. A hundred dollars. Once they got to a trillion, it'd be a hundred thousand dollars over their paycheck. Exactly. Oh, it seems okay. small, but yeah, with a trillion dollar deficit, which is what the Trump administration is looking to run uh, this year. And again, not even to pick on Trump, the Obama administration before that. So Congress year after year after year after year. So it was just amazing that this guy comes into my class the week that I'm doing that and right on the heels of this debate. And he kind of gives basically a, a market principle being introduced into the federal government as a, a U.S. senator pros- candidate. And so I just kind of explained to, to him in the class after hearing that, that, you know, if we, even if that wouldn't maybe do much, right, because some of the senators are multimillionaires or whatever, and they're like, well, it's well worth it for my programs to get through. I would gladly take 100000 out of my pocket to run a trillion-dollar deficit. So, you know, just, even if we have that mentality, the introduction of a market principle like that, I think would just start to change the tone and the tune and maybe get us thinking of 10 other ways we could introduce you know, some sort of market principle that there's a little bit of a cost, a little skin in the game, uh, for some of the people that are making these decisions collectively. Jacob, what were you thinking? Well, I was just going to say now it's, they're going to have to get 100000 or more of value from passing like those pork barrel barrel. Exactly, yeah, that's price. a cost-benefit analysis. Yeah, for it's all going to change it. And it could be an internal calculation too yeah. of some sort. But what, nonetheless, I thought it was still fun to think that, hey, doing something. we're doing something. Like it's moving the needle the right direction rather than the wrong direction. That's kind of what I was thinking. So, 
Uh, let's see, Jason, did you have any other ones to add on? Or we could, uh, old Jacob can, can say something too or add on. I guess the only thing else that I touched on in my first speech was duplicate programs. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of amazing how little the government communicates within itself. (laughs) So, I mean, you could see five different departments working on, oh, let, let's say cancer research and they, they will not be communicating with each other at Mm -hmm. all. And so it leads to duplicate programs, again, just inefficient. And so that was one of the other things I touched upon. It's like, the duplicate programs cost like a hundred billion dollars a year. Hmm. So that's, that's waste right there. Yeah. Yeah. Jacob, what did, what did you talk about last night with your remarks? Yeah. That's a crazy with Mises and uh, your Ron Parks and Rec. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I took it a little bit different of a direction. Um, Cause I thought Jason did a good job of pointing out, obviously all the inefficiencies that are, I mean, present within government now. But my focus was more on that the government or not that the, that the market can provide these services that we think that the government has to provide for us. Yeah, you know, my big point was like it's pretty natural. Were for you us. the one that brought up the post office, the yeah. FedEx and stuff? Yeah, I mean, yeah. the UPS and FedEx both oper- operate profitably, whereas the post office, the, the last year alone, lost fifteen billion dollars, and mm-hmm. we're the ones that are going to have to pay for that. Yeah, and the only reason that they exist is because they have a guarantee on first class mail where UPS and FedEx can't ship that. Yeah. And so that's the only thing that keeps them alive. Like, and I remember in one of the undergrad classes, you even talking about the, that, the, the, I think it was a couple brothers in New York that they started their own. Oh yeah. That was, old, that was actually, I think an old Milton Friedman video. Even. So yeah. It was from the eighties or something. And they guaranteed same day delivery. In, yeah. And like within this metropolitan that the, that the, the, the traditional mail couldn't even guarantee. I forgot about that one. Yeah. And they decided that it was illegal for them to do that. Yeah that it was competition for the government. Yeah. And that was, that was one of my whole point is, you know, that the the government is protected from this competition. Whereas the private industries, if they're not meeting the consumer's demands, they, they go away. Yeah. That's the government has, is completely protected from that, which I think is, was, is one of the massive problems. Legal plunder almost. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, I made, I tried to make the point that it just completely destroys resources because I mean, like you said, like the the if the, the prob if the project fails, it's just a lack of funds. It's not a lack of uh, anything else that the government can identify. Um, and then I talked a lot about taxing. Um, that's when I talked about the Ron Swanson quote, which was, you know, the government's a greedy piglet that suckles on the taxpayer's teeth. <laughs> and I mean, it's just the the they just tax more and more. And I mean, this goes back to even how do you say it? the Salamanca economists in Spain in like the 15th century. They even begged the government from a moral perspective that taxing was wrong because it was theft. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rothbard says that all taxes are theft. But my case was more of that when you, any level of taxing by definition has to decrease the amount of vulnerable funds. And so my point with that is that that, that disproportionately hurts the, the more vulnerable groups because the wealthy are just going to shift their resources in a way that, you know, it's not going to affect yeah. them as much as the, the business owner who can't get a loan now because it's so much more expensive to get a loan. Yeah, some of the impacts in different areas can disproportionately hit. The, basically, if it if it hits everybody equally, I mean, one example is if food if food prices get distorted. Let's say all food prices go up by five percent um, as a fraction of your income. Yeah, that disproportionately hits the poor harder than it hits 
a person making a hundred thousand dollars a year compared to a person making twenty thousand dollars a year. Mm -hmm. uh, that that distortion is going to disproportionately harm the poor more than it than it helps. Uh, and so, you know, reflecting about it last night in hindsight, I might have came off a little bit too extreme because I think people <laughs> thought I was radical. Yeah, I think I think people <laughs> thought I took a completely Rothbardian approach of you know burned down the government. Well, <laughs> I meant more of federal spending is bad. I should have been more clear about it, it could be localized better because I think, yeah, I, actually just this last week, the, the, the St. Louis fed released their annual report and out of all of the public debt, I think it's 86% of it belongs to the federal government versus 14% being at the state level. Oh. And so if you were to flip that, of course that would go up, but I would imagine that the, the local levels, especially municipalities, if they were to collect taxes that way, would be able to use it a lot more effectively than the yes. federal government because those people exist in the communities in which that they are trying to spend that money. Yeah, which yeah. was like the whole the whole point of the beginning of my speech is the government's spending your money anyway. So why do they get to pick how to spend your money? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's part of the various discussions we've had on on federalism. If we actually pushed power down to the states and gave them money, perhaps still coming at the federal level, but the federal level's not making the decision of where it goes. Mm -hmm. um, so that something could be on much that. more effective, that we're getting, it, we're getting closer to where the people would know better where to put the money mm -hmm. um, conceptually. So I was just reading something that's, that's interesting about that. Um, they're making the point that the anti-federalists were actually right versus the federalists because some people saw the Constitution as like a centralization of power to the federal government. Yeah. So, I mean, even then you can, you can see like a long history of shifting away from, you know, the, the, the moving of power from the, the state to the federal level. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure the anti-federalists had necessarily a better solution though. In, but they think that the preamble in Everything. the Articles of Confederation was better than the, the, the constitution. The constitution. The yeah. The, 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 the Articles of Confederation granted the federal or the, the state governments more power than the constitution. Because the little bit, I don't profess to be an expert, but I did do a little bit more in my class I taught last semester on that. And from what I gathered, I think there was a chance there would have been better odds. We would have been more at civil war. We just wouldn't have we had, had a civil war anyway. We, we wouldn't have had maybe the same cohesion of free trade across state lines. I think there would have been more siloed policy making at that level. So it'd be more like 13 individual countries. Kind of. Yeah. We'd look more like the EU and maybe we wouldn't have uh, look the way we look today. So at the end of the day, I mean, I, I, I understand those trade-offs. I think we can make better what we're doing today mm -hmm. and, and get back to maybe closer to what it was originally envisioned at with more power to the local, lo local municipalities and less at that top level. I think where since the Great Depression, that's where we've we've seen the progression move. So. Well, especially since the advent of the Great Society with uh, Lyndon Johnson in the 60s yeah. when he just completely well, yeah, came that, out the slew of social programs. But even, yeah, the Great Depression onward is where we mm -hmm. started to see more and more transfer programs and more and more. And that was Keynes, 1936. So the Keynesian revolution with him giving some yeah, Lord economics. Yeah, writing then, right? Yeah, 1936 is when he wrote the general theory. Oh, okay. So macroeconomics so to speak, really didn't exist prior to Keynes. And so the politicians grabbed on to his thoughts of big government and let's act, be an active government and helping steer the economy. 
that all was 1936, and that's where we saw a lot of the redistribution of uh, type of policies. And that's just crazy how government popular it got so fast compared to other schools of economic thought. Yeah, yeah. And so to make that go away is pretty difficult at this point because you have entrenched interests that have grown up to that point. Well, especially so. with the Federal Reserve. Yeah, well, that, <laughs> that, that's right up there too. So, all right, well, this looks like a good place to take our first break. So our first and only break, I should say. <laughs> Uh, when we come back, I kind of want to think about a little biblical tones uh, in addition to talking more about the debt and deficit. But, you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Um, should we care about these things? Or are we just supposed to follow like little uh, lemmings, uh, whatever government's in power? I, there is stuff in Romans that says obey the government, that the government's been somewhat uh, ordained or put into place by God. So we'll, we'll come back and think, uh, chew on those thoughts. See you in a little bit. The Gortney Institute is seeking a graduate assistant. Earn your MBA with full tuition by participating in fun and impactful events. For more information, check out the Gortney Institute website. To ask a question for our mailbag, send us an email at info at gortneyinstitute.org or call us at 785-248-2551. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Justin or Russ today. Welcome back. So left you dangling there with a cliffhanger of some sort that I can't quite remember, even though it was just 30 seconds ago. <laughs> uh, I wanted to bring a little, a little uh, biblical references in here that I think are kind of fun to think about. So Romans 13, 1 through 2 says, Obey the government, for God is the one who has put it there. There is no government anywhere that God has not placed in power. So those who refuse to obey the law of the land are refusing to obey God, and the punishment will follow. I don't know about you, but if I'm under the Hitler regime, I'm kind of thinking, hmm, maybe, although plenty of people went down that path, you know, Hitler wasn't exactly pushing Christianity, not to bring up probably the world's most awful person but i guess my point is you know at what point do we get active with caring about the debt or the deficit the government's there obey the government what are your guys thoughts on that what is that you can still pay your taxes but speak out against them okay yeah okay so you're obeying the law it does not say in there can't try to inform change you, yeah you can't try to push change good yeah i think I think that's a good point, and uh, that it that it can't be made better. In fact, 
I would further that saying we're, we're called to do better through our stewardship to use resources as most efficiently. And so there might be a crappy government in place that doesn't know about economic freedom. <laughs> and we are actually called to maybe make that change. Part but, of your vocation maybe. But in the meantime, you obey the laws of the crappy government that mm. is in place, if it is indeed crappy. Or, there's always some crappy element. I mean, nobody <laughs> usually agrees with everything for the most part. Maybe that's too strong. But And uh, when there is change, it's going to change in some shape or form that's not going to help everyone uh, because there's just too many people, too many diverse preferences. And so, yeah, I don't think there's, there's anything wrong uh, in that respect. Um, the other quote I was going to throw in is Matthew twenty two twenty one: 21. Uh, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Uh, and 13.1, let every person be subjection to the governing authorities, which is where that was from Romans on that one. So uh, give to Caesar what is Caesar when Jesus was trying to be tricked. Um, again, if you owe some taxes and that's the law, you pay the taxes. But as you said, it doesn't mean we can't uh, reach out to try to uh, make some change. So that kind of ropes us back into this uh, debt deficit idea and trying to further that. So Jacob, you had some comment or question you had? Yeah. So um, my thing was, I thought of if we left taxes the same and decreased spending in a specific area to pay off towards the deficit, how would that like impact our government or maybe the economy if we decreased spending in just a specific area? Uh, while leaving taxes the same. No matter what you cut, some population is going to complain about it. I mean, no one's ever going to agree yeah. on one specific area to cut. Right. So I still think it's a good question. So then, do in fact, I had this written on my uh, sheet as potential questions for you two. So now you're going to get them. Do we do an across-the-board spending cut? Or as young Jacob was bringing up here, how do we... Pick I think we cut. do it across the board. I mean, Jason might have a different opinion than me, but I think we do it across the board. I mean, the only reason we think that we can't do some of these things is because the government's done it for so long. One of the best examples is universal schooling. Um, when that came around, I think it was 1890, when, when they passed it federally, that all students of a certain age had to be in school. Like 96% of students had, uh, that, that lived within uh, you know uh, metropolitan areas were already in schooling. Like a lot of these things that the government imposes – like th that's already happening. And the only reason it doesn't happen now is because they've been crowded out by the government. So mm -hmm. it's not that the, we can't do these things. It's the fact that we have no reason to do these things or we're not allowed to do some of these services, like going back to the post office example. Yeah. So Jason, what are you thinking across the board or, or somehow targeted? And if so, how? I mean, I'd go with more of a targeted approach, especially like when when you think of things more more of the manner of how the government spends the money, not necessarily what programs it spends it to. So like pork barrel spending, for example, they've tried to ban that twice in the past and uh, they just they never follow through on it. They don't actually go through and punish those who continue to do it. And so it's just like, oh, I'm not even going to get a slap on a wrist for this. Yeah. Or uh public procurement, like fixing the innovation and how the government spends money. I think, I think that's a great place to start. Not necessarily specific programs, but the rules in place on how they spend the money. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think hitting the rules would be important. 
because uh, if we even if we froze some planes or had others, I, I guess I'm not much of an across the board. I think it's pretty weak. That said, I think you start across the board and then you make it more in the areas that are weak. You have to be extreme so, to find compromise. Yeah, I know. It, 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 uh, to go across the board, though, I always felt like when, um, let's say, the university here is, is needing to do budget cuts and they just say, okay, across the board cuts 5%. To me, that's a weak move on management's part because... I think that's so different. How I know, I know. individuals uh, step up? I, I think okay. you're fair. So let me just finish and then you can rebut because I think you're, you're probably going right where I was. But in, a, in an organization, it's weak because you could take the time to figure out, oh, well, this department is really could be cut more. Or there's not as much demand for that particular area. But that takes work. It's so easy in the boardroom to say, across the board cuts, we need... We need a million dollars. Ten percent of what we did before was a million. Boom! Ten percent board across the front. Let's go golfing. I mean, literally, it's that easy, right? Whereas it's much more difficult to dig into the details, learn about the things that we're doing and why they cost what they cost, and then make the difficult cuts. For like, maybe it's a half a million dollars from one area, mm-hmm. and we just cut it out. And then we leave the rest of the things, you know, with minimal cuts or something. So my, my question to you, I guess, would be, then do you think that there's a group of people that can be put together smart enough to decide <laughs> what should be cut at what level for the optimal results? Yeah, I figured that's where you're going with that. And so I think my answer would in general be no, but I think a li- maybe a little bit of what Jason was even saying is that we could look for areas where things could be turned over to the market. Mm-hmm. So let's cut the post office. Boom. Okay. Let's, yeah. I'm with you guys there. Let's, uh, let's find some other areas. Um, probably the federal highways and stuff. So we have a multi-billion dollar project for a freeway. Let's turn it over to a private developer and let them charge a toll. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, boom, that's cut that out of there. So, I think if the government continues to seek ways that we can turn it over to private hands and or create some sort of market principles. Yeah, what is it? Public-private partnerships? Yeah, and and I think uh, that's where Jason was maybe going, was changing the rules of how future money is spent. That type of targeting would probably be more effective than just uh, floundering along like we have been, but... That is definitely easier said than done. And see, I, I just think, uh, I see what you guys are saying. I just think that's almost, it's almost too vague for me to understand just changing the rules of spending. I mean, because we change the rules and people just get around it all the time. Like one of the best examples being like the formation of 527 groups or super PACs to get around campaign finance reforms. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think it is easier said than done. And but so is cutting everything. Right, and so is cutting everything. So it maybe it's some sort of combination. Jason, what were you thinking? So I think a good example of the rule thing is how the government pays for our roads. So the government has to go with the lowest bid that mm-hmm. is put in. And this may sound counterintuitive to a spending, but I'll, I'll, go, I'll go through the whole thing and it'll kind of make more sense at the end. But because the government always goes with the lowest bid, our roads don't get done to the best of their ability. And so Mm -hmm. that's why Kansas City every year, there's a pothole like huge (laughs) enough to like blow out your tire. And it's 
I saw an awesome picture. Sorry to interrupt, but I, there's a picture of two old guys and they're pulling out a crappie out of a, a pothole. <laughs> <laughs> they got like their chairs, like they're ice fishing right in the middle of the road. It was hilarious. So, okay. Continue on, Jason. Oh, so it's just an example of the lack of the ability to provide innovation to yeah. spending. It's like, nope, you have to do this. Even if this will make the roads last longer and next year we won't have to do it as yeah. soon or at all, too bad you have to do it this way. Right. Because it might not be my budget, right? Or next year's budget is somebody else's problem. I'm retiring this year if I'm in the government, right? We're not necessarily have that same line of thinking. Young Jacob, what are you thinking? You said you brought up the thing about turning the highways maybe over to private, like someone privately. Yeah. Well, if they charge the toll, who would do, who would want to pay the toll? Say they jack up the prices, who would do? Who would want to like regulate the prices on that? You know, like that, that have to drop the what, prices. Yeah. No one's. That's doing the it. beauty of it. No, I'm glad you asked that question because we don't care. Guess who has to care about that? The person who's trying to profit. The investor yeah. who built the road. Exactly. So. Do they make mistakes when they, you know, underestimate the loss of traffic that's going to happen because the toll is $3 instead of two fifty? They bear the whole cost mm. of that, right? And so then they're forced to drop the toll. Whereas if the government underestimated that mm -hmm. effect, they're like, oh, we just need to force more taxes or <laughs> we just need to, you know, they can just suck money out from other places. Yeah. And so... That, that, that is a great question and, and one that makes it efficient. The sentiments of people, though, would go crazy. They'll probably go crazy just listening to this podcast. Of, I'm not paying tolls for the road, but it would be so much more efficient if we did really have the users of the roads paying for the roads. And if you cut the taxes that you spend on, the, you know, the proportion of your taxes that go to roads anyway, I That's imagine right. it'd be cheaper in the long run just to pay the toll, but yeah, people don't think of it that way either. Yeah. And with t today's technology, we could be charging every mile we we run. I mean, with GPS, yeah. uh, there, there there's technology available that we could be paying for every time we jump in the car. We don't even need to have toll stations or anything, right? We're at a totally different different level now with with technology that we continue to make improvements to roads. Roads would be cheaper. Tolls would be cheaper. We'd be shifting all the resources that. Uh, Jason, you're bringing up with being wasted and inefficient. A lot of that would disappear. So that is a slow-moving glacier, basically. And uh, but it, like I said, I think that's what was exciting about hearing the U.S. senator here for Kansas that's that's running to even think he's thinking that way. He was a former Kansas City Chief for nine years. Dave Lindstrom. I don't remember what he played time. for the Chiefs. He played for the Chiefs, and then what party is he? He left a uh, Republican. And so he left the Chiefs to go start Burger Kings. And he ran Burger Kings as a family venture, and he was pretty successful with that. So he kind of gave the – he's got this business sense that he'd like to bring to Washington. You know, he's, he's just a candidate right now. So he's just uh, throwing his hat in the ring to replace uh, Roberts in the U.S. Senate. But that type of thinking, if we can get uh, – this is why I work so hard day in and day out, my principles of micro and macro and the Gortney Institute and – educating people if we can just start to get people a little more comfortable with the spontaneous order of free markets and not having top-down planned action and have a little faith in competition serving as a good instrument for the uh, 
distribution of goods and services and resources to their highest and best use, we can make the world a better place. So, all right. Well, I think we're running a little short on time. I was thinking about doing a couple other things, but uh, I have a question. Yeah. Other than so, say we're spending the same and increase taxing, we could increase our highest rate of taxes from, you said it's, what, 39.5%? That's for the highest tax bracket. Yeah, so we just increase it all by like 5%. Well, what would happen then? Would people want to skip out on their taxes even more? Possibly. Yeah, it would create, that's the fear that you run. If, if, you, if you start raising it too much, rich people have enough money to go take up residency in another country or to just move their funds so outside accounts, of the country. Yeah. And, and like I said, it, it it impacts the the market for loanable funds too, which is what I think is more concerning. Yeah, yeah. So to keep us competitive, I think uh, we got to be careful with that move. I would have been fine not having the brackets. So when Trump did the tax rate, that was the only one he left was that top bracket. I think we could have left the second to the last bracket, not necessarily going down to. Honestly, I would have been happy with keeping the personal income tax code basically the same and dropping the corporate tax even more. Like the corporate tax could have went down to that's what I think fifteen percent. I'm like, we the United States would have been an oasis. A, no American company would ever leave, and foreign companies would find us so attractive. And if we're making up the difference with the higher income tax brackets playing a larger share, there's there's a sweet spot there where I think we would have enough economic activity from the reduction that would offset it a little bit of a, a Laffer curve argument uh, on the corporate side that we would have uh, a reduction in tax rate, which we did. And then we have that much more economic activity that more than makes up for. So even though the it's taxed at a lower rate, we have more activity that we're taxing. So mm-hmm. tax revenues might, might even go up, but maybe even at, at, uh, at worst stay about, about even, but now we've got more people working and, more economic activities. So, all right. Well, I think that looks like a good place to wrap for today. So uh, on behalf of the Gortney Institute, we appreciate you listening. Give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. Otherwise, don't do anything. If you think you didn't like it, just don't listen again. But uh, we hope that you enjoy the, the discussion that we have and weaving in and out of uh, faith and economics and looking at the overlaps. So, On behalf of the Gortney Institute, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.